You're listening to Object of Sound from Sonos, the show where we bring you in tune with the music that shapes our culture. When music lives in the air, it's one thing. But when you know the undercurrents and the ideas that went into a song, when you can feel its weight, it becomes more meaningful. I'm Hanif Abdurraqib, a poet and culture critic, and I'll be your guide as we seek a deeper way of listening. So you may have noticed that this episode is a bit longer than our usual show, and that's because this is a special that's also being broadcasted nationally with our partners at PRX and a number of affiliate stations across the country. We're excited for new listeners to be joining us and to spend some extra time diving into some big ideas. Let's get started. So one of the last shows I went to before the pandemic was in Iowa City, and I didn't know anyone in Iowa City, so I went alone. And because I went alone, while I remember the music, I mostly remember the collective experience. I was very focused on audience and getting kind of swept away in the shared feeling of awe, which I now realize is what I miss most about the experience of live music. For the past year and a half, I've been waiting to return to this feeling, and now it's here. Right now, we're in an unprecedented moment. After a long pandemic year, people are starting to venture out again, and long shuttered music venues are reopening. Whether you've already been catching tons of shows this summer or are not yet ready to see concerts at all, we'll be exploring the evolving landscape of live music. Coming up, my conversation with the artist Esperanza Spalding, who has devoted this last year to creating music to help us heal from the grief brought on by the pandemic. We're going to get an artist's perspective on what the return to live music means, and later, We've opened up the Object of Sound hotline to hear from listeners about their favorite festival memories. My soul died and was reborn. It was just the greatest, uh, maybe the greatest moment of my life, like inside or outside of music. You'll hear those throughout the show. But first, this past year, as tours got canceled and venues closed down, musicians started jumping onto technology and using it in new ways. Live stream concerts and versus battles erupted. We got invited into artists' personal spaces, their living rooms, their bedrooms, their basement studios. And in a way, it's changed how we see these people as maybe more human. At the same time, the music industry adapted, building out a whole infrastructure around live streamed concerts and planning for an immediate future without live music. To help me unpack these changes and understand what's coming next, I've invited Sherry Hu onto the show. Sherry is an award-winning journalist whose writing focuses on exactly this intersection of music, business, and technology. Her newsletter, Water and Music, is so great, and we are so happy to have her on the show today. Hi, Sherry. How are you? Hey. Hey, Hanif. I'm doing well. How about you? Um, I'm excited to talk to you because you seem to have, well, I know you have a lot of insights that get perhaps beyond the immediate excitement of people just like rushing back out into the world of concerts. But first, I want to ask, at the start of the pandemic, or even in the middle of it, I remember last summer, there was a thing of live stream concerts where um, bands or artists would be on stage and the quality of the stream would be high. And the idea was to make people feel like they were in the room. And I watched a few of those and I enjoyed them. I, I, I marveled at how efficiently and effectively they were pulled off. But they didn't, at least for me, really replicate the feeling of 
a live concert, which it felt like in some ways they were attempting to do. Do you feel like the live streaming was something that was not taken advantage of? Like, what are your thoughts on that as a mode of live music consumption? Yes, so um, I personally think live streaming as a technology is great, but certainly does not replace that feeling that I got pre-pandemic. I almost feel bad admitting this as someone who like covers music and tech, but I definitely watched many more of them at the beginning of the pandemic than I have in the last like couple of months. Um, I think just because it was because the pandemic just had such like drastic effects, not just in the music industry, but on the whole world. And the music industry in particular was definitely trying to figure this out in real time. Artists trying to figure out, you know, how to stage these events in real time. So something that I have noticed in terms of a rift that has emerged in the music live streaming space, which I actually think is more exciting to me or more creatively interesting, is artists using live streaming more as social media. Like they don't necessarily see live streaming as a way to stage a concert. It's just the way that a lot of artists had already been using Instagram Live just to go live spontaneously, chat with fans, um, respond to the latest news, or artists have been able to lean into a lot of their own personal interests outside of music. Like, I think a lot of artists have really found their groove and footing with gaming, for example. Um, Cooking, I've seen some artists, like, really lean into cooking on Twitch, kind of reading out loud, just, like, leaning into their personal interests outside of music. That is a really great use of live streaming that does not really fall under the kind of concert umbrella. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff that uh, I think will happen in the coming months kind of on its own with the model of, I guess, these like concert live streams. I do see and the industry is really investing in them as just a supplement to in-person tours. And we'll see that in which companies get acquired, you know, which companies promoters buy and the business model. Like it will probably be tied to or related to like a typical concert ticket. You know, one thing I'm interested in is the future of Versus, which was something that I spent a lot of time watching from my phone during the pandemic. Uh, recently, I watched the Ghostface and Raekwon one. And Versus is interesting because it's this arena where two artists pair together, two artists with similar catalogs in some way or some similar connection. They pair together, they play their songs, they talk about their songs, the inspiration behind their songs. And it is weirdly richly communal, even though we are all watching on our phones and commenting in the little box at the bottom of Instagram Live. It isn't a traditional concert, but in a way it's the closest I felt to a traditional concert during my time in the pandemic because it was a community of people spending time with the same music, which is kind of what I go to concerts for. So yo, two cheers, please. We out there. Ah, yo, man. I'm loving this energy, man. Yeah. For real, man. This is beautiful for the culture. You know what I'm saying? Yo, me and this But man, do you think there's so a future for her, that man. kind of... like? Because I asked this specifically because a part of me thinks that Versus does not work as well as a live thing. Mm. And so do you think there's a future of that on Instagram only? Or is that something that we'll have to evolve to live in person along with everything else? Mm. I, I think of it more as like a podcast or a listening party almost than than a, than a performance per se. Because, um, yeah, I'm just thinking of what the in-person experience would be because a lot of the times in verses, the artists, they, a lot of them could perform, but they're performing over, you know, like pre-recorded music that was like already released. Is right. that necessarily an interesting in-person experience to have like an artist just like 
borderline like lip syncing, just like you know singing sporadically, you know over their songs that were already released. And I think like like a lot of podcasts pre pandemic, like the the touring business for podcasts was growing really dramatically. Um, a lot of podcasts were like doing really well, like seeing conversations and the energy exchange between these two people, like chatting with each other as opposed to giving a a performance. So go back to festivals. As people reemerge and kind of start attending those again, um, what do you think are some big things that might be different than the festival experience in 2018, 2019? Mm. So definitely the, I think the top concern is just how safe people feel there and safety can encompass a lot of different things, both like health-wise, also just safety in terms of, for example, not having to worry about getting harassed or assaulted by people, you know, when you go to a show. And pre-pandemic, I was already seeing a lot of artists, mostly independent artists, speaking out about, you know, like, oh, we have this like actual policy at all of our shows, like, oh, we'll have, you know, dedicated staff or like volunteers will help make sure it's like as safe an environment as possible. Or I remember this one particular artist, like Rina Sawayama mm-hmm. on her, I think previous tour had a specific group for like people who are going to concerts alone. And if they wanted to like buddy up with other people who are going alone. Um, and so even like small gestures like that do send a really strong signal, at least to me. And I think to a lot of her fans, like, you know, we care about making this as fun and safe in all sense of that word of, of an experience for you as possible. So I, 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 Hopefully, maybe this is something more that I hope to see than like will happen. But um, yeah, I do hope more artists will kind of lean more into that. So in regards to COVID and going to concerts in the post-COVID era, what will safety look like then? On the COVID-related safety question, there are a ton of apps out right now. Like uh, I think Excelsior is one of the main apps in the U.S. where you can, you know, put in your health data to confirm that you've been vaccinated and you can like, you know, show that to businesses in lieu of just your physical vaccination card to get into certain events or to, you know, like eat at certain bars or, or restaurants, et cetera. Um, of course, there are also more negative, like privacy related concerns, like what happens when, you know, your 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 health data is tied to your like concert data. Like previously that right. those are things were not really related at all. So probably dozens of different companies out there that are like vying for the same partnerships with these venues to kind of um, control that from a health perspective. So, yeah, I think we'll see that remains to be seen which ones will like really win out um, in that ecosystem. But definitely that's like probably the biggest change from 2018. What did you imagine the future of live music to be and how close or far off are we from how it existed in your imagination? Um, I'm surprised. We, I feel like we haven't actually seen that much development of things like in-game concerts, for example. So like just before last summer, Travis Scott held his show in Fortnite. Um, it gained, you know, millions and millions of views, both in real time and after the fact. And people really thought that was going to be, you know, the future of concerts. That was the phrase I heard, like, all the time. Um, but I feel like if if you, like, really approach the medium of gaming in, in the right way, and, in, you know, like, in, in uh, an interesting and inclusive way, it could lead to really cool new ways of experiencing music, especially kind of the visuals around music. Um, so, I, yeah, I wish... I could see more instances of that, you know, in a way that is especially more accessible to a wider range of artists, aside from just the top 1% of um, of celebrities. So hopefully, you know, as tech improves, we'll see that happen more frequently. My last question is, for you personally, is there an emotional experience you're looking forward to when it comes to live music? Is there an emotional connection that you're seeking that was not there 
for the past year and a half? Mm. I really love the, I guess, the feeling of witnessing improvisation in, in real time and also in person. I've really gotten into some artists like Marc Rebier, for example. I don't know if you know of him, but yeah, he does these like oh, daily, yeah. Yeah, live yeah. streams that are really great. He's had like really amazing guests recently. I've like binge watched all of those in recent months because of that magic. Those are what really excite me personally. And so, yeah, I would love to see that in person, face to face, as opposed to just through a screen. Great. Sherry, thank you for talking to me so much. I hope you do get out and get to see something that excites you soon. This was a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. You too. Sherry Hu is prolific on Twitter. You can follow her at SherryHu42. That's C-H-E-R-I-E-H-U and the number 42. Also, I highly recommend subscribing to her newsletter, Water and Music. This is Object of Sound this summer of live music from PRX and Sonos. We're looking at what the future holds for concerts, festivals, and for listening all together. So during the pandemic, I found myself sometimes trying to picture the before times, especially the joyous moments of gathering and the memories that came up strongest for me were from live shows. So we opened up the Object of Sound listener hotline to hear some of your most cherished memories of seeing live music as a kind of memory jog and a taste of what's to come. Let's take a listen. Hi, my name is JB Bergen, and I'm calling in from Cleveland, Ohio. My most cherished live concert moment was probably when I saw Frank Ocean in 2014 at Bonnaroo, played the beat for No Church in the Wild, and just sang his hook once. And then the audience sang it again and again, and probably five or six times. Human beings in a mind, to a king. And he just kind of watched and put the mic down, and then he faded it out and picked the mic back up and just very earnestly said thank you to like an audience of thousands of people watching him quietly. One of my very greatest concert moments was seeing Prince, and not only was he, I mean, he was Prince, obviously, and it was, that alone was incredible, but he did this medley of songs, and he was sitting at the keyboard and playing, just kind of noodling around, and then I realized he was starting to play the intro to Superstition. I recognized the song he got up moved away from behind the keyboard and picked his guitar up and then some guy comes walking out from backstage and sits down at the keyboard and then <laughs> my brain like put, slowly puts the pieces together and it's Stevie Wonder sitting down at the keyboard and then they jam together and my soul died and was reborn it was just like, the greatest uh, maybe the greatest moment of my life like inside or outside of music Denise, hi, this is Lynn Havens. I'm calling in from Florence, Arizona. And at this very moment, my most cherished pre-pandemic concert memory is uh, seeing Lucy Dacus perform live at the Olympic in Boise. But you don't owe him shit, even 
song was thumbs and I my memory is just of weeping just almost sobbing I became estranged from my own dad 10 months exactly to the night of when I saw Lucy Dacus live and so to hear her sing you don't owe him shit even if he said you did was a really visceral moment of catharsis for me and was actually a huge turning point in my process of healing after becoming estranged from my dad. Thank you for calling into the Object of Sound hotline and sharing some of your most cherished memories from live shows pre-pandemic. So in 2018, I'm at the Eau Claire's Festival in the woods of Wisconsin, and my friend and friend of the show, Julian Baker, calls me on stage to join her during a performance of her song, Claws in Your Back. Oh, stranger, it seems like we have kept each other alive for another impossible season. Oh, stranger, in the country I have built for us, there are no storm clouds. Oh, stranger, in the country I have built for us, every cloud is shaped like a moment from our childhood where we felt no pain. Oh, stranger, the ice is melting. In the the Eau Claire's Festival is one of the best experiences I've had performing at a festival and one that lingers in my mind, especially now, because the work of the Eau Claire's Festival is that of collaboration, first and foremost, and spontaneity. If you're around the festival as a performer, you might get pulled onto a stage and asked to do something. One of my absolute favorite memories of Eau Claire's was that if you were a writer, and there were a few writers there, me and a couple others, that was it. You were put in a tiny house, very literal tiny house, and you were supposed to read just straight through the hour. And people would just funnel in and out as they saw fit. And because it was a tiny house, only maybe 25 people could fit at a time. Not even that comfortably. So people are surrounding you. People are sitting on the top bunk while you're kind of standing below it. People are sitting on counters. And I remember looking up every now and again during readings and seeing people finding new ways to make room for their bodies in that little house. What I have is two hands, and I want nothing more than for one of them to find yours on a narrow street where the trees crane their green mouths to whisper secrets in each other's ears while the lawns hum and flick water into the sunlight. Oh, stranger, let's make our own endings. There's kind of a shrinking of people's gaze on you when you're performing with a friend or when you have a connection with someone's music and they give you the honor of sharing the stage with them. Your focus, or at least my focus, became primarily on the miracle of collaboration. And perhaps that's what I miss the most. Even at a really large festival that is sprawling and expansive, there are still moments of closeness and quiet that really can resonate with folks. And I hope that people can get back to that, to find their people among the sea of people and get a little quiet time with them, even when there's noise everywhere. For me, music can create a type of emotional comfort. It can help people reach out and connect to one another, and music moves people. 
It moves all of us differently, but to be in a single space with people being propelled forward by a single sound is really emotionally grounding for me. Esperanza Spalding is an artist I've been following for a long time whose work revolves around the power of music to heal. Besides being a Grammy Award winner and someone with an expansive range of musical talent, over the pandemic year, she's been creating what she calls the Songwrites Apothecary Lab, a kind of school blending music and therapy held in different cities across the country. Sink into the ground, wide and steady while the burning flickers to a glow out the temple of your ear. Hi, Esperanza, how are you? So good. Nice to meet you. But how are you? How are you moving through the world, sir? I'm okay. You know, I'm, uh, I don't, it's interesting to be isolated. I don't know. Have you, have you spent a lot of time in isolation over the pandemic or have you been kind of surrounded and encased by, by people? <laughs> um, you know, about half and half. I mean, yeah. I had a very isolated childhood. So I, I really love isolation. It doesn't feel like isolation. It feels like, oh, now I have an excuse to like not feel pressure to go socialize. I, I I really love being in the little nest and the egg of my home. Right. Um, so it that part was actually really lovely. But, you know, growing up a little bit and, and learning learning what it is to be alive in community, you know, I also have been making a point to create safe community you know, where we can gather and be with each other. You were in Portland or you're still kind of actively building yeah, a kind I'm, of a, an, artist, an artist commune in Portland, right? <laughs> um, I wouldn't use the word commune because it, it definitely implies a thing. But yes, I'm working <laughs> on curating an artist retreat space, a sanctuary space. When I talk to musicians who have been out on the road, or I talk to other writers who spend a lot of time out on the road, about the past year, I get kind of a wide range of responses about how they've responded to silence and stillness, if they have. And I've been so captivated by, you know, I've been, for me, you know, I've just been marveling at the kind of mercy of silence that I had forgotten about. You know, I'd forgotten Mm. that it could exist. Um, Mm. To not be on an airplane for a year, to not kind of like Mm. shuffle from (laughs) one one hotel to the next and all that. Um, What what is what have you been making out of the silence that you've been gifted if it's if it's been a gift wow i hear you about the parts that we that we don't miss you know coming out of a year and some change of being in these very loving like beautifully curated creating environments uh where there were a lot of agreements coming in about like our how we wanted to show up to each other into the land, into the space, into the work, like coming out of that kind of like mystical, magical unicorn realm. And then like stepping into <laughs> like uh, Friday was my first gig in public. And like remembering all of these weird di- performative dynamics between like mm. presenter and crew and like the power dynamics between like crew and manager and it, it was just like, whoa, whoa, I have been in a safe space for a long time. <laughs> um, and I've been in very black spaces and I've been in very queer spaces. And and just like, oh, like feeling how much of my performative, like social lubricant self 
had actually atrophied. And I'm, I'm hearing things come out of my mouth I would not have said two years ago that are how I actually feel and how that behavior actually made me feel, you know? Yeah. And now I'm, I'm going to give the credit to, to, the, to the unknown entities that are collaborating, you know? Like I wasn't as um, tuned into that before. And now I, I really feel like Allah, if you want to take it out of the realm of like, you know, uh, divinities, there are things that move through us when we play music and we don't know, we don't know what they are. Right, we don't. Right. And that's okay. And I suddenly feel a new responsibility to acknowledging that every time we come to play and just being like, that's that's okay. <laughs> I can name that I don't know how this works and what's actually coming through. And I give praise to whatever is doing it, you know? I wanted to kind of gently pivot to Songwrites Apothecary. Okay. Which... <laughs> Thank uh, you. Songwrites Apothecary started right before the pandemic, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's so weird. Yes, it did. All right, let's take a listen to one of the tracks you made as part of that lab. This is an excerpt from the piece Formula 2. Will you describe for me the songwriter's apothecary lab? Like, give me the, the elevator pitch, as it, as it, as it were, <laughs> if that's possible. Well, yeah, it depends on what kind of elevator we're on. You know, like what building are we in? Are we going down? Are we going up? Let's say we're we're going up 12 (laughs) stories. Okay. (laughs) I like that number. Um, Well, Songwrites Apothecary Lab is a space where researchers and practitioners from various fields related to music-based therapies collaborate with songwriters to to find ways that their knowing and expertise and our knowing and expertise can merge or inform one another to create songs that have a more salutary effect on the listener or at least a salutary offering to the listener. While the music sounds dope, you know, like that's priority number one. (laughs) That's amazing. I guess first, how did the dream come about? And then how did the dream have to shift uh, yes. when, when you know, the pandemic made it more difficult, perhaps? <sighs> yeah. Well, um, many years ago, a friend gave me a book called Healing Developmental Trauma. And there's some passage in there, a chapter in there about engaging with intentional affect can like alter your nervous system response. But but I've always wanted music and service or music and restoration or music and well-being to be in collaboration. So that's really where it started. And I wanted to continue learning about what a songwriter's role could really be in this field of 
music with enhanced therapeutic benefit, you know, because we're not going to be clinicians. You know, we're not going to work in that patient client dyad. It's just, it's not what we do, but we have something to contribute. So I, I was really wondering, like, so what is our space? You know, like, how can we show up as songwriters? How can we show up in right relationship with these fields, you know, and these practitioners who really do know the science and, and the medical application and the ethos and the ethics? So, yeah, top of 2020, I was like, all right, it's time. So I gathered this little consortium, this little council in February. We started to develop a praxis for how songwriters and these practitioners could actually learn from each other and collaborate. And then we did it again in the spring with my students this time. They were the songwriters and I was working on the songs from the Portland Songwrites Apothecary Lab. On Saturday, we start the New York iteration of the Songwrites Apothecary Lab. So the formulas that are going to grow out of that lab, you know, are very much going to be coming from what we're feeling and experiencing and longing for music to respond to being in the city right now in the summer of 2021. At the intersection of this improvisation that happens on stage and that happens within an audience experience, I I think what I'm thinking about is um, the ways that live music perhaps help a re-entry into a world that for me, has always been unpredictable, but I think became especially unpredictable for a lot of folks in the past run of months. And I'm wondering if you think that music, live music particularly, can be a maybe a transitional force for some people. Yeah, that's so beautiful. That's such a beautiful framing. This is a thing that actually came up in conversation with one of the council members last spring about it could bring a kind of uh, encouragement for a person to witness an improvising musician creating sense and beauty out of out of the unknown but i do think you're you're speaking to a, a, a like a primary vein and benevolent vein of the technology of improvisational music like we get to practice meeting chaos and feeling our profound capacity to co compose beauty, sense, togetherness. And and it has that potency. It has that potency of like, nothing can move. I can't move, (laughs) but we're going to make a way, you know? I love that. I'm so interested in this because I think music is healing. I've always felt like it's gotten discussed in my world as a very abstract thing. An abstract thing that I... I gravitate towards, you know, I'm very much up against the glass of the emotions, just plainly how a song can make one feel, period. And that's kind of a, a propulsive force for me. And I'm, this is maybe a broad question, but I'm wondering how your ideas around music as healing have shifted as you've grown as both a musician and as a person who undoubtedly has healed in a number of ways. Oh, I want to say, oh, there's so much to say about that. But what you experience when you hear a song that's healing to you, I can never know. And I love that. It's one space. It's like poetry. It's like what happens in your brain when you read what's on the page. Like nobody can track that or or um, co-opt that. It's yours. It's private. It's, it's sacred. It's your relationship with that sound. And I 
And I love that. And I honor that mystery in this field that we're exploring. I think the way that we're approaching the song, Rights Apothecary Lab, it, it rests on a reality that when you dedicate yourself to something deeply and sincerely and over time, it seems like it, it kind of recalibrates you. And I think above anything else, that's what people feel. <laughs> it's not what you're saying or what you know or what you studied. I, I actually think it's the way you show up when you've really dedicated yourself for, for um, a heartfelt or a caring or a loving motive or for beauty or for excellence for the sake of other people's bliss and enjoyment, you know? I love that. Let's hear another clip from one of those songs created in the Songwrites Apothecary Lab. This is Formula 3. experience of music being healing for you as you've worked on this project? At one point, I was really struggling working on the libretto to this project. And I was working with a dramaturg and having conversations with everybody who I thought was like a source of expertise on writing libretto or writing theater. And I, I, I just was like, really on this edge of like, I'm going to give this a few more months and then I'm going to find another writer. It's like, I can't do this. You know, it, it, I just was struggling so much. It was so uh, embarrassing and humbling. And I went to this restaurant over near Union Square, Japanese restaurant. Um, woman who was uh, the host or the waitress was not Japanese. But some kind of way, she started talking to me and we realized that we both chant Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. And she was like, oh, so what are you chanting about? And I had the I had the libretto on the table with me. I was like working on it every waking moment. And I told her, I was like, well, I'm I'm right in the middle of trying to do this project, but I don't think I can do it. Like I actually I think I'm gonna give it to somebody else. And she like put her hand on the table and she was like, I think you should do it. Just just keep working on it and chanting it and you can do it. And this sounds so silly. But the the calibration of that woman in that moment with like the polishing that she had done on her life, probably through her Buddhist practice, that was her way of seeing me and believing and having the confidence that I could get it done is what convinced me I could get it done, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I just think of that in the context of like expertise and being in a lab and doing all this research. And it's, it's really not the data. It's the calibration. It's how you show up in the work when you're offering it, when you're offering it with, with generosity, when you're offering it with love and, and with the true intention to support another person's growth, 
which is what that woman was doing. And it wasn't based on her expertise of opera writing. It was based on her confidence in me as a human and her taking the time to to share that encouragement, you know? And I, I don't want to degrade the rigor, the academic rigor in the scholarship and the research that is going into this lab. And <laughs> it's music. So I also feel that in some weird way, all of it is a way of, a kind of uh, framing or orienting ourselves as songwriters. And that is what, that if there is even a difference that people feel in the music that comes out of the lab, I think that's actually the difference, you know? I love that. I love that idea that expertise can come from anywhere. That was such a wonderful story. You're such a great storyteller. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take that coming from you, sir. Bless. (laughs) Thank you. That's, um... That's a wonderful place to, to end, sadly. But I will say, uh, I'm so grateful for what you mentioned about not going back to the way things were. I think collectively and universally, that's something I understand. But the individual not going back to the way they were before is, I think, perhaps mm. the uh, the most important. So, Esperanza Spalding, thank you so much for talking to me. This thank was you a real so pleasure. much. It was a real pleasure for me. Esperanza Spalding's newest project is the Songwrites Apothecary Lab. You're listening to Object of Sound, this summer of live music from PRX and Sonos. I'm your host, Hanif Abdurraqib, and today we're devoting our show to the complex and exciting promise that is the return of live music. Thinking about the return of live music, we put out a call to our listeners to share a cherished memory from a festival or concert. We love getting voicemails from folks across the country about the shows and emotional moments that had a lasting impact on them. Let's take a listen. My name is Preeti. I'm calling from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I think my most cherished memory of a concert is from 2016, and it was my first ever live concert in the U.S., and I saw Muse. Their show was so spectacular, like I loved their music, my sister was an insane fan, but I didn't think I loved them as much as I did, and I think that concert opened my eyes, and honestly, I've seen them twice since, and I think that band is going to become a band that my sister and I see together all the time. Hi, my name is Carson, I'm calling from Chicago. I went to see Cage the Elephant right after they came out with Melophobia, and the lead singer was on stage and we were at Red Rocks Amphitheater, like an, an amphitheater carved out of like the side of a mountain. And the live singer, he dove into the audience sitting at the base of the mountain basically and just kept going higher and higher and higher up with his guitar. And we kind of carried him all the way up until he was like what seemed like just at the top of a mountain. Doctor. Look into my eyes. But it was like the most like insane, almost superhuman thing I've ever seen happen at a concert and I can never get that image out of my head. My name is Terry and I'm calling from Baltimore, Maryland, but I'm originally from Fort Worth, Texas. I was seeing a band called The Internet in Dallas and we got to the concert a little bit early and we were about to wait in line and we saw two of the members from the group Matt Martians and Sid, who was the lead singer 
standing outside, and I remember just being shell-shocked, and then I asked her if we could take a picture with her, and she said yes. So I have this photo with me cheesing. I remember I, was, I told her, I was like, I feel like I'm going to pass out because I can't believe I'm meeting you. Thank you all for calling in and sharing some of your favorite moments from music festivals. I hope each of you get to be back out in the crowd again sometime soon. And now for a final thought. You know, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I lived a life where I would spend most nights during my week at shows somewhere in the Midwest. Punk shows, hardcore shows, emo shows. And this was also in an era where the documentation of these shows was kind of at a high, very shaky documentation, handheld camcorders. You know, this is before cell phone videos, of course. And so grainy footage in rooms that were not very big, in rooms where there was a lot of frantic movement, so the camera was always shaking and sometimes would fall, or these type of things. We now live in a world where some of those shows I was at are on YouTube in all of their granny footage glory. And I found myself in the middle of a pandemic when I missed live music the most, going back and watching shows from like 2001 to 2005. I wanted to watch as confirmation to know that I was there, that I was a body at a concert surrounded by people once. Don't get me wrong, I'm very much past the stage of my life where I can engage in some of the physicality of those shows that would unravel into that kind of chaos. What I do miss is the nature of closeness. For a long time in the midst of the pandemic, I couldn't imagine being close to another person in any capacity, not brushing shoulders in the grocery store, not accidentally reaching for the same thing while outside, nothing like that. And as I ease back into that, I hope to return to some version of my younger self, probably not the version who's thrashing about in a pit with a bunch of other people, and probably not a version of myself who's jumping off a stage and trusting strangers to catch me and hold me up for a little bit. But maybe someone who watches that chaos from afar, shoulder to shoulder, with someone else who's a little too old for the madness, but still likes to be in the space. Object of Sound from Sonos. Thank you to our guests this week, music industry journalist Sherry Hu and the artist Esperanza Spalding. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, listen back to past episodes, and follow us to see what's next. We're at Object of Sound on Instagram and Twitter, plus Sonos Radio on Instagram. This show is produced by Work by Work. Scott Newman, Gemma Rose Brown, Babette Thomas, Mayari Sharina Ong, and by me, Hanif Abdurraqib. The show is mixed by Sam Baer. Extra gratitude to Ian Fox, Sean Nesbitt, Jason Saldana, and the team at PRX. And, of course, Joe Dawson and Saida Blount at Sonos.
Thank you so much for listening.